0: Welcome to the Circle of Birth podcast. I'm your host and advocate, Ali Kranz. These podcasts are here to gather stories, people and information to better our understanding of the wisdom of birth and how we can reclaim our connections to birth from conception and beyond. You will hear stories not only from Australia but from all over the world bringing together women, partners, midwives, doulas and all the people that have a birth story to share. So jump right in for this next Circle of Birth story. Welcome to episode 29 and I am completely honoured to just change the tune a bit for the circle of birth and talk about death because they are so, so similar and so close and in course this is the circle so we're going to talk about death and I have found a beautiful woman to talk to named Denise Love who is a death doula. So we are having a conversation about death and we're going to deep dive into the process of a death doula and hear more about Denise's training and the amazing work that she's doing overseas currently in Cambodia and Bangkok. And I feel after listening to this, you will be quite enlightened and maybe have a bit more scope into... Uh, ...the process of dying and how similar this is to birth. A really interesting conversation. If you're not ready to listen to this now... uh, ...please do come back again at some point and have a listen. Um, We basically are having a conversation... ...and we're talking about the work that she does... ...and it's very light and very beautiful... ...and I'm absolutely proud to release this podcast so i hope you enjoy and listen again with an open heart and here it is all right hi denise thank you so much for joining the circle of birth podcast i it is an absolute pleasure you have joined us from bangkok and uh it's just a pleasure for you to be here and i looking forward to hearing about your life journey
1: it's wonderful to be here. How exciting to be talking depth. Yeah,
0: exactly, yes. And this is why I, <laughs> how I found you. And so basically I started this podcast to talk birth stories, but it, it's transformed a lot over the episodes into birth as a transformation of a woman and a feminine and just talking about projects and what people are doing. And one of the things that happened to me after the birth of my Second child, um, which uh-huh. was a really empowered birth and all that sort of thing, was I thought about death straight away, and it was like this is how people should die. And I, yeah, um,
1: so true. Yeah,
0: and I've been thinking about it ever since. And then I stumbled across you, so I would love to talk about death with you if that's all right. In a yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: that's yeah. the whole transformation. That's what. Become. I mean, there was a time in Queen in Brisbane. I was running. I was doing birth and death and in some days I'd go to a death and then I'd go off to a birth and then the next day I'd go off to a death. So it became so normal for me and and just um, the space is exactly the same.
0: I would love to honour this episode and talk about your journey um, as a nurse and a midwife and perhaps the work that you're doing overseas too and then we can talk about death doula training and
1: the work that you're doing there. Beautiful. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, the space we hold around birth, and the space we hold around somebody when they're choosing to die, is a very similar, calm space where we listen to them, we facilitate their needs, and um, I guess probably it's a lot of years now I've been doing the work together. But most of my work that I learned around birth and death came from the Indigenous people of Australia. When I was 20 years old, I was lucky enough to work in a remote part of Australia in the Northern Territory, and Suddenly, the drama was gone from both situations when there's no doctors and no hospitals, everything seems so normal. And that was nursing? Well, that was nursing, yeah. I was a brand new graduate as a nurse and I was up there as there was no medical help and I was up there living in isolation and people died, babies were born, people died, babies were born and the community just gathered and got on with it and so it's become a passion. Also, my mother died as a child and no doubt that triggered lots of things because it wasn't dealt with very well. But And as a young 17-year-old nurse, you know, I had no skills to to deal with people dying, but suddenly it was happening around me. So as a, I guess as very much from being a birth doula, and I choose to be a doula now rather, rather than anything to do with medicine, um, I've been with many women who have had stillbirths or had lots of miscarriages myself. And... That reality that we just don't talk death, or we don't acknowledge it, or we don't know what to say, has become. And I'm an older woman now. So I'm closer to death than I am to birth these days, so it's time <laughs> to start talking about that. Exactly. <laughs> how,
0: how did you feel in your young years? Did about death then, with, with or, no knowledge around you?
1: Did you were you
0: frightened of it happening? Or? Or did you?
1: Strangely enough, no, I've never been. And I guess I'm lucky enough to have lived in a family where our grandparents all lived at home till they died. And it was sort of found my grandma in the bath, you know, dead. And it just felt like it was normal. So, no, I've never had, um, in fact, probably a morbid interest in it. You know, if somebody said they were sick or dying, I think, oh, I'd like to help you do that. So it's never been uncomfortable for me. Um, and in fact it's interesting I go to a dinner party or something and somebody says oh so what sort of work do you do Denise? I say oh I like to work with dying people and they kind of turn their chair the other way and look away from me It's <laughs> it became apparent to me how uncomfortable it is for everybody yeah. so I'm kind of pretty driven to start those death conversations
0: Yeah you're exactly right too especially um, how you said working uh, alongside indigenous cultures and probably the work that you're doing overseas it's here we tend to not honour it in that respect. That we try to sort of hang on to it too much of to to life, I suppose, and we get stuck into a phase where uh, we're not letting the transition happen into. into
1: and much. that's a real reality I see. We're in the fix it mode. You know, I've, they've got a great video that one day I'll give to you to put on your podcast because it's all about, you know, we can make life longer, but you don't get any more time in your 20s or your 30s. You get a whole lot more time when you're 70, 80, and 90. Do you know what I mean? So you kind of get old age, you know, longevity means that you get more old age, which isn't necessarily all that comfortable. So, um, yeah, we're a bit obsessed with health and well-being and fixing things in the West now. And, you know, when I hear of a darling little baby dying, there's all this judgment, it wasn't fair, and that shouldn't have happened, you know. It sounds so harsh to say it, but death will happen no matter what. Yeah. And so I see it as very much my responsibility to just stand with people and go, let's, let's be with it, let's just experience it, and let's not be so kind of caught up in it.
0: Yeah, and which is a hard concept. Um, really hard concept.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. And so tell me about your birth journeys. You've got two children who are young adults
1: now yeah well and truly young adults one's 40 and one's 30, <laughs> 32 or something so they're very young adults to me but very old people also yeah. look I was lucky enough as I said to have that experience in the territory and I was in you know my first baby was born in the late 70s so it was the beginning of us setting up birth centers and I was very much part of that and looking for the alternatives and so I had beautiful births with both my children luckily it was um, long, hard labours. I have posterior births, so they're long and they're difficult, which probably wouldn't, you know, people would be trying to intervene in this day and age. But my births were exhilarating and I, and I just felt like I became woman, you know. It was the first time I had confidence and, and absolutely believed in myself. So the transformation for me was quite phenomenal. And soon after that, I started running birth classes. So I've been teaching birth or when I say teaching birth is standing beside women and just saying, you can do this, find a path, find a way. And whatever this is, you know, I don't judge how women give birth. I understand that Western medicine has changed a lot of birth image in front, you know, for us. But I, as a doula, am happy to stand by anybody as they find their path through life as a woman and get to where they want to get to. And often we have to birth our baby first baby one way and our second baby another way and our third baby our way. And I'm happy to be patient and be with it whilst bringing information to people about beautiful, natural, simple births, you know?
0: Yeah, well said. I Just reflecting on that, I remember recording a podcast with Jane Hardwick Collings and oh, yeah. she said uh, something very similar in the lines of we need to have these births to teach us what we need in life and and again it's that it's that holding that space to honor that birth experience and not trying to fix it which we're so conditioned to do
1: (laughs) and not judging it you know we don't get that perfect birth the first time, we're not born women. We're, we grow into our womanhood and we grow into our courage and we grow into our strength and it takes its own time, you know, and we're given choices and options now. So, of course, some women are going to choose an option that's different to maybe what they thought.
0: So during this journey uh, after your children were born and you were teaching birth classes and attending births as a midwife or still nursing?
1: As a doula, just as, as a doula. A doula yeah. I choose to do the path, yeah. Yeah, and... How did
0: it lead us into the death doula and this journey Okay,
1: yeah. yeah, well, I don't even know how it led in except um, I always say when I stopped attending births, I would stop teaching births, which is I was one of the first doula trainers in Australia. There was Dala Doula and me, and we started doing doula training when I saw there was a huge hole in the community where midwives were getting very caught up in protocols and practices and they were feeling like they weren't always present, and the report, but I was running lots of mummies groups and things, and so many women said they felt so alone, and so many men, and we have this energy now that we want men in the birthing room, which I was very much part of promoting, and now I'm not sure they should be there, um, and I always say that very reluctantly, but it's just a whole circle that I've come through life, and then women were facing death, and their little babies were stillborn or having miscarriages and wanting support through that, or the whole thing around um, very much became interested in death when everybody started having 20 week ultrasounds and being given the choice to abort their babies. Mm-hmm. I suddenly, as a doula, seemed to have to stand beside so many women as they chose that path because of possible abnormalities. So I was kind of thinking, wow, this is another set of tools, you know, to help a woman make those decisions is massive and then to be beside them as they birth their child Um, energetically it's very different to what we probably thought of as a birth doula so um and then at the time I was working in Brisbane as a palliative care nurse 100 years ago and set up our in-home palliative care service and that was amazing Um, and that was before we had palliative care so I choose now to be a a death dealer and a birth dealer, because I don't. I find I can't work within the structures of the organisation called hospitals of medical help. And being able to be spiritually there with a woman and acknowledge her or a person that's dying, it was kind of. I know I'm talking a little bit in a garbled way, but it was. It was very much around intervention coming into birth that seemed to change the outcomes of birth, and we were facing different issues. So I started to work. M- as much as, or get more and more requests to be present at the death of a baby.
0: But so, so basically, it sort of came to you in that. Yeah, it always that comes were, to me. Yeah, you were feeling that something wasn't right in the systems that you're a part of and working with, and um, it, I guess things got brought to you, which led. You brought to me,
1: and I was willing to act on it. Took death home. In fact, I used to pick up people from Brisbane Hospital. I did a deal with them where people who wanted to die at home, I'd go and pick them up and take them home and look after them at home. So suddenly I realised there was a need and a want, and I'm talking 20 years ago I was doing that. Um, And then I went to work. I've been in Cambodia for the last six years, and death is so in your face there. 45% of our children don't make it to the age of two just because of lack of clean water. So suddenly my impotence is a... Um, grown-up woman of not being able to save people was so challenging, so I had to really look deep inside myself and suddenly saw that death wasn't the enemy, it was how we felt about it all Um, transitions through life are normal and watching the people who when I say feel comfortable with it, of course they grieve and of course there's huge pain, but the values aren't there that Westerners put on failure death seems to equal failure here so it's just been, it's kind of just been a journey that I've gone on. Then I go and do my own thoughts and feelings and investigation about it and start holding circles and saying, let's talk about this stuff. And then the whole world's going, let's do a death all a training. We want to be that person. So then I go, okay, in six weeks, let's start a course. So that's kind of <laughs> how it unfolds. You know, I love sitting with women. I mean, we train men as well. But sitting in circle, mountains move, when we all sit together and talk about things and and face it and then I put a bit of structure together and it just unfolds. So twenty years ago,
0: in a sense, the word doula would have really not been heard of. No.
1: Yeah. I just I used to go to births as a friend, you know, people would just call me and say, I've heard you attend births, could you come with me? And because I was running up to, I was running two or three birth classes a week everybody started asking me to go with them and it was, you know, it was just a transition that was, I've never set out to be this person. It's just always been there. And um, I think, I mean, as a little tiny girl, I walked around the house with a baby wrapped up and kind of used to look after my dogs. I think it's just always been something in me and, empathetically you attract people and suddenly I see a, a purpose I think well we can all do this now and I think all I've done is replace those women in society that used to be there and I'm just saying to other women come and be of service come and do this for your sisters you know this is not so hard find your heart it will fulfill your life it'll make you feel more powerful on earth if you sharing your skills and look in some ways I see it as a professionalization of woman I see that we can gather our skills and put a title like doula on it. But, yeah, it's probably only 16 years I've known the word doula and what, what started using. What,
0: what, what did you call it? So you were just sort of like attendant, I suppose, when you were?
1: Oh, birth assistant birth to start assistant. with. Yeah, yeah. Never call myself anything. Denise Love's always been my name. Do you know what I mean? People just say, oh, Denise, I think you go to birth, don't you? And i go, yeah, do you want me to? And then I'd support them through and they'd all come to pregnancy classes. So. But a birth assistant, I guess, was my first terminology if I had to have one. But yeah. more than anything, it was – and that's what I really promote still. You're still just Denise or you're just – whatever your name is, and these are my skills. I happen to be an accountant. I happen to be a doula. Or I happen to be a massage therapist. And I think that's the joy of being a doula. We don't come with a formal background. We come with a huge amount of skills that we've developed in life and then we start to share them. Yeah, that's
0: one of the biggest things to bring into a, a- – being there for a woman and serving the woman is your life skills and that energy that comes from that.
1: And I think, yeah, that energy and the willingness to be there is 90%. I say to people all the time, come and do the death doula training if you want, but just your willingness to walk beside somebody and shut your mouth and listen is all you need to do.
0: Yeah. So could you reflect a bit on the death doula training and what that would entail? Sure. And what would a death doula do for someone that was dying and how would the person dying contact a death doula or know that it's time? <laughs> there's three questions. Okay, got all that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, look, death doula is very still new in Australia and it's, the fascinating thing is the time people do the training to when they start actually working is probably about eight to 12 months. There's some. There's a beautiful time of needing to integrate what you come to the training for when you start to feeling comfortable working with people. Um, although it's amazing how many people come to to the training and then have somebody die in their family or close very soon after. But death daughter training for me is initially a foundation training course, which is two days. Now, I don't believe that you can develop all the skills you need in that time, but I feel a slight urgency to get people out and saying, I'll be there for you. And the other thing that's become very apparent to me is people who come to the birth doula training do often have a lot of skills and they're often already practitioners. All sorts of complementary therapists are doing their course and they've already got a a great set of skills and all I'm doing is topping them up and saying you can do this. So I run a two-day foundation course, um, which is where we explore our own thoughts and feelings about death and then because clearly you need to clear out some of that stuff before you can be of service. And then I give you some tools, some relaxation hypnotherapy tools to take home. You know, my voice saying you can clear out all your beliefs you don't want. And then some just simple practical skills on green funerals and the possibility that people can say no to chemotherapy. And, you know, we become just like the birth dealer or the information giver I see is there's a the medical team there's a the family who want people to live forever and we're coming in saying well you know what there's this option there's option read this article have a look at this video and um, so that way we just bring that other voice in that people people think they have to have a funeral special way they have no idea there's actually no regulations around the funeral you don't even have to have one so as I, as it's unfolded to me, and I've just been working with people, I've become more knowledgeable about the what the little couple of things you have to do around the crematorium or a burial, but otherwise it's all your choice. So we come into your life. So, for example, now we've got a, we've got an email, I mean, a website called australia, And people are starting to put their names up on there saying, I'm now available, I'm ready to work. So otherwise, I've got lots of Facebook pages now that are people contacting me through. It's not easy to find death dealers at the moment, but usually, often birth doulas are willing to go and be with people when they're dying. They're suddenly going, oh my goodness, it's no different. So it's just a network of people talking at last. There's a fantastic organisation called Groundswell in Australia. So, and the beautiful Zenith, she's around doing doula training or death talks. So through Googling now there is opportunity to find somebody who might be able to be there and I support people long distance on Skype and stuff. So um is that enough information about those questions you asked me? Yes. Um
0: I also, I don't know, this randomly just come into my head, which was a really cool fact that a friend told me the other day. It was about uh how many oh, – I can't even remember it. It's about having burial plot plots on your own property. Do you know about the yes. laws around that in Australia?
1: <laughs> yes. So as part of your handbook, you get all of that. It's got to yeah. be more than a five-kilometre area and you can you can bury your own people. It's, it's, a, it's all about land mass and each state is different. Yeah. So you can bury on your own land. Um, provided it's not too close by. And the more I look at that, there's still a disconnect between people. I mean, once you register a death, there's not a lot of information that crosses paths of where people are even buried. So it's really an unregulated sort of thing in some sort of way. I mean, you can bury your dog, but you can't bury a person in your back garden. It's all very weird. Weird, yeah. Um, So, but we've got green funeral cemeteries coming in. We've got wonderful cemeteries where there's no headstones; it's just forest. Starting up in Australia,
0: yeah, I've heard that where they just plant the tree now underneath.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or you, where now the next step is we're just going into a forest, and you'll have permission just to find a burial area, and you bury. You're not allowed to mark it, and they're just there and they're gone. As long as you're using, you know, cardboard or green timber, untreated pine. Um, but we bury in shrouds now you don't even need a coffin necessarily so there's a huge movement and things are going to shift and change because land is less you know available and also we're looking into the green factor of whether it's better to cremate or bury according to you know toxins and things and we're really encouraging people never to embalm people so there's a, a bit this is really exciting time it's a time of I think people have had so much information. We're a fairly educated country now. Or people are generally educated. You can get any amount of information on the internet. So people are wanting answers. They're not willing to just settle for the status quo. And home death is really special. If we can find people who are willing to be present because families are busy, then it all works, you know. And does a death doula involve
0: just sitting with the dying person, for a period of time. It is similar to birth, I suppose, being that emotional support and physical support.
1: Very similar to birth. And the longer I worked as a birth daughter, the less time I spent with women because the family becomes so strong around the woman themselves that you don't need to be there as much. But we make, you know, whenever somebody usually gets a terminal illness, you know, somebody says, well, you know, you better get your affairs in order. We often get phone calls or through home hospice or hospice we get notification. And my dream is that every GP will be able to hand our name out to somebody and say, ring these people, they can support you. So we could go and sit in a house. If somebody wanted to come home and die or even in a hospice, we could go and sit in the house all day for that matter while somebody was at work. Um, But what usually happens is somebody calls me, I go in and have a visit with them and that visit's free for me. Some people charge and some people don't, but I go in and just meet them. And I make suggestions that I could come in once a week, once a day, help them sort out all this emotional stuff about, am I really dying? And I say, well, what do you want to do before you die? And how do you want to, do you want to be awake or asleep? What are your thoughts on dying? And nobody's ever asked them those questions before, nor did they know they had a, a choice even, you know? Yeah, wow. And then, yeah, so then I might only meet them once a week for the next three months and then suddenly things change and um, or I might only talk to them on the phone you know over that period of time once we usually have a couple of meetings initially to get our head around the fact that somebody's dying things tend to settle down if you can if you can settle those feelings and emotions and, and know they know there's somebody there things change dramatically but a big getting closer towards the end I often go in from 4 to 9 or 10 in the afternoon so the family can you know maybe mum can get the kids from school have a normal dinner sit down quietly um and then i leave at about 10 when they all go to bed or else i go in and sleep overnight in the person's room or sit up in a chair just so the whole family can sleep without worrying you know that feeling of you're listening for somebody yeah yeah so there's lots of different ways we can do it and it might be just once a week i do that to give everybody a good rest um do you you find it's
0: like birth too, in a sense that you can sense when they're ready to go
1: Absolutely, yeah, wow. absolutely. And particularly, you know, breathing changes. Often it's very obvious with rattly breathing getting towards the end, so you know that you've probably only got four days to go unless something happens sooner. It's a bit harder than birth because birth is never going to be go beyond 30, 43 or 44 weeks, hopefully. Yep. Whereas death, yeah, death you can't kind of guess it that way until the rat, you know, rattly breathing or something starts. But that's where I find that skill of going, you know what, you guys are doing an amazing job. Let me teach you how to care for them now. So during the initial training, it's just simple, and then we have an advanced dual training course that's a bit more practical skills and how to keep mouths clean and, you know, a bit more looking after that person if you're going to do a bit more hands-on care, which is a choice everybody can make. And then um, now we have our third course is when a baby dies. So we work with mummies that have got sick babies or a stillbirth or a baby in intensive care or something Right. so my my dream will be I would love to have doulas for miscarriage doulas for abortion I just think you know it's such a phenomenal time when a woman says goodbye to a baby or a child or a mother or a father or a brother so I would love to stand beside everybody who is transitioning in that way and then the grief is less complicated I know that to be true
0: yeah I guess because the process is happening and it's being allowed to process yeah yeah Uh, I've got so many questions (laughs) they're all compiling (laughs) into my head I'm so curious Um, I'm obviously doing the course next year and I'm so looking forward to it and just uh, more so for that fact of I hear a lot of stories of um, and it's usually with the elderly that before they die there's some sort of emotional something that they have to talk about or heal or do you, do you sort of work with that in the training as Absolutely. well? That, that You know, like so you hear about people like they'll show them a photo and then they're ready to go or they need to talk to someone or they're waiting for something. All
1: that. It's amazing. The, quickie, the quicker you can bring that up from the minute you meet them, the quicker they die. They die yeah, so they I'm die. all about facilitating death, not holding on to, death, yeah. to life. Yeah. So you know, if if I'm usually brought in by the family because they're overwhelmed, and then I say, can I speak to the person? And you know, sometimes they're so out of it with drugs, I might work with the palliative care team to lighten them up for a few days so we can talk. And I just I say to them, have you got any secrets? And you can tell me and you don't have to tell anybody else. And just sometimes even sharing that story, it might be about an ex-lover or a baby that died back in her early days or even a child might say to me, I've looked after children who are very young, they might say, oh, I told Daddy I hated him and I think that's why I'm dying. And just getting rid of some of those thoughts and feelings can be just enough to allow facilitate death. So all of that, all of that. Yeah. Had one man that called me in, and he just wanted me to go through his little black book and call all his girlfriends and tell them he was dying, you know, <laughs> without anybody beautiful. else knowing. So we're the secret, we're keeper of secrets as well. Yeah. And then alternatively, I'll say to them, How about I get your family in and we have this out and we talk about it? Or, you know, why don't you just bring them in and I'll say that you had something you wanted to say, but you'd rather not say it, but can we all just sit in the room and. Know that you know everything's all right, or this look that. I don't think everybody's got to face their demons before they die, but I think it's really nice to acknowledge them,
0: yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. and share, yeah, share the story, I suppose.
1: Share the story, and we're that beautiful person they can share it with. You know, it's pretty hard to tell your daughter that you had an affair before her mother, and blah blah blah, blah yeah, exactly. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So we're that lovely ground where you can tell all your secrets. And often they'll say to me no i've got nothing and you can see in their face there is and i just look deep in their eyes and go it's okay i get it you don't have to tell me Mm. you know it's that that deep knowledge sometimes just looking and saying thank you i understand or i hear you and full stop doesn't have to be even the story Mm. so it's kind of having that courage there's no special skills for that except the courage to do it
0: so do you ever ask them if they're ready to die or they want to in the initial oh, first
1: thing I say, are you, are we living or dying? That's my, I'm pretty harsh this day. Yeah. Are we living or dying? And people say, well, the doctor said I'm dying. And I say, well, actually, um, that's what the doctor says. You tell me, are we living or dying? Well, and some will say, I just want to die as quickly as possible. And then I say, well, you, you want to be awake or asleep? And we can work with a palliative care team to either keep them as awake as possible, depending on their pain. It's often cancer people, so we've got to reduce their pain, but... There's lots of ways to die. It doesn't just have to be a morphine syringe that knocks you out and, you know, you don't know what's happening. And I'm working with another woman at the moment who wants to use no pain relief whatsoever. I'm doing it long distance. She wants to experience it at every minute and her family are really struggling with that. But, you know, it's just amazing um, to give people a choice. Yeah,
0: and it's just this is just so like birth, like everything that you yes. just said in that last sentence is exactly
1: that empowerment that we need in birth. And, um, and people give, you know, uh, people give birth quicker if you just hold that space and people die quicker if you just hold, hold that, that space. space. yeah. So, so yeah. why? If, you just, if you're just there nodding and going, this is amazing, you're amazing, look at you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and well, this that that fear that you
0: for them, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah.
1: yeah. And you sitting with the fear with them. Some people say, but I'm so scared. And I say, I get that. Mm. And they'll say, well, am I going to go to hell? I say, I have no idea, but I'll sit with you and hold oh, hand if you are. And we have a laugh about it, you know, because I haven't got the answers for everybody, but I'll say, I'll be there with you. Mm.
0: Do, have you ever seen or have a theory about, I don't know if they still do it, but like in the 1800s they used to write, do not resuscitate because – Mm-hmm. Um, when people would get up um, and start talking and dance around and do all this crazy stuff and then pass after that. what What's your theory on that? Because well, I I find it to be really beautiful. It seems like everything's just exploding into the brain in, like, colour and life. Yeah. And
1: <laughs> people have an awakening. There's always even... I sat I was only with my father two years ago in his late eighties, and even though he didn 't fully wake up, I could see on his brow that he was having an awakening i've had people stand up and then lie down and literally die ten minutes later there's a there's something energetically that changes that often even when the breathing's almost there they'll get restless and and you know that's my indication that we're getting close to death you know there there's it 's a decision making process your brain dominates everything so you know, it, it depends. Look, if somebody's had a deep, tragic accident and they've got brain damage, a death is different if you're sitting with somebody like that. It's all different. But if, if somebody is generally letting go, whether it's an eight year old child from an illness that's fairly incapacitating, but there is definitely a process of um, agitation, I think of it as just before a death. You know, somewhere within four hours and the death, probably there's an awakening or an awareness.
0: And do you try and keep a really open mind in a sense of what happens to the body um, after
1: it dies? Yeah. Yeah. I have absolutely no philosophies. I have studied every conceivable possible thought, um, you know, I've and I've believed in a lot of them over the years. And what I love now is I'm just with the body. I'm just with the person. And what I love to do is leave the body as, you know, sometimes you're sitting with somebody and they literally take their last breath and you can think, oh, they've gone. And some people, it's 20 minutes. You think, oh, I think they're nearly left now. But I don't even know where there's a spirit world. I don't know. I don't purport to know anything. I just know that there's a, a transitional time of how long the brain takes to let go and how long the heart takes to completely. Even though it's stopped, you know, there's functions still going on for, you know, a short time after that. Mm-hmm. But I don't have a philosophy on the afterlife at all even though I'm comfortable to sit with anybody who's got one and walk that path of belief beside them. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And it's, it's probably a good sense to have that because you don't want to be narrowed into any philosophy.
1: Which would, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and that's come from being with so many people because my particularly young children will say to me, an eight-year-old will say, well, what happens? Everybody tells me I'm going to be a fairy or an angel. Is that what's going to happen, Denise? And all my eyes say is, I don't know. And my answer basically is some people believe in Santa Claus, some people believe in fairies, some people believe in spirit. People used to tell me my mother when she, I died when I was a little girl sat up at a star and looked down at me. I don't know. If I have a way, I'll let you know after I'm dead. But um, having gone through fairly strong spiritual beliefs myself, I'm now in an absolute no-man's land. But I love ritual. And if I'm sitting with a Christian person, I'm happy to read their prayers. If I'm sitting with a Buddhist, I'm happy to read out of the book, you know, whatever. I'm happy to chant with people. But I can also bring in other people if if they want somebody more committed to that cause, then I can find others to do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, I just think that's a beautiful space to hold because when the fear's gone then it doesn't matter what they believe because it's going to be that's the
1: whole point that's where you get them to and i say let's you know if if you've got a higher power let's talk to them and ask for guidance and if you don't let's not and and it's very freeing for me and i love sharing everybody's beliefs and rituals around it without having to participate in them if you know what i mean beautiful i
0: i i had sort of a bit similar like i've Learned from so many beliefs and wit- not, not witnessed them, just observed them and thought about it into my own belief structure but all I keep going back to is I just want to like get eaten by heaps of microbes and bugs and stuff like that and just I'd be quite happy if my body just gets put in the ground and gets eaten up and exactly. I just don't really know what happens after that but all I want to know is that my body gets like decomposed <laughs>
1: that's it that's it and part of our training is when you know the very first training course is just for this course can you believe there's nothing else Mm. and you know it was transformational for me when I started living my life completely for today and I always sort of did anyway but if you don't have a belief in an afterlife or anything else it really helps facilitate the day-to-day minute-to-minute living now and then if there is something else it's just a gift yeah yeah exactly
0: I do remember, um, you know, in my younger years I went through sort of that fear of death and facing that in trying to hold on to not understanding myself as a woman and the feminine and all those attachments, like you said, in this yeah. Western culture. Um, and I, it was really random. I remember seeing a pamphlet for – they just started releasing like cardboard coffins where you can just mm-hmm. put your own photos on it and stuff. And I thought it was really cool and I started reading about it and it just – I don't know why this one thing really made me sort of turn, but they were like um, – they had a video of it and they were taking people through it and it was like this guy in there sort of laughing and they're like, see, you don't fall out. And <laughs> I just thought that yeah. was so hilarious. And then, I don't know, then from then on I sort of I, – I too, I'm just so curious about death and the, the whole process of it. In a, in a similar sense, would love to be a person that could honour that without holding on and that attachment to – to the person that's dying or um, yeah. honouring their story. And it's similar, you know, what I'm doing here with these birth podcasts. How cool would it be to do some, um, not death podcasts, but the stories of these people's lives and to talk Absolutely. about them when they die and help, help. Uh, you know, I really sort of gravitate to a lot of those cultures when they sort of talk about instead of holding in the grief they talk about their life and their story and quite freely talk about them to help their soul sort of
1: pass through and to pass through exactly yeah and whatever that soul is I mean that thing of being willing to sit so for example where I work in Cambodia when somebody's dying the family are actually making the coffin beside them so there's no pretending or hiding and that's part of that beginning of the journey you know they participate and they do simple things, but the, the talking about, which is kind of what a wake was meant to be or a funeral service was meant to be here, but it's become a glorification of the person. You know, everybody stands up and does the eulogy, which is isn't she wonderful and isn't she grand, instead of sitting around and actually talking about the person or the old bag that she was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. it's, it's sort of, it's lost. they have it's, a few drinks. <laughs> yeah, the truth <trespasses, laughs> And just being with, I mean, I think there's nothing more powerful than sitting around somebody after they've died. Bring the family into the room after a little while. I usually wait 20 minutes or half an hour. And I say, come in and let's tell the stories, you know. And tell me about what, and I lead it by telling me about what your birthdays were like as a family. For example, if it's a parent dying, tell me what happened on your birthdays. Mm-hmm. Tell me what your Christmases were like. So by triggering thoughts for them. They start to walk down memory lane and so they leave the room ultimately with a lot of happiness rather than the sadness. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: exactly. And that's yeah. a, that's very much how we need, you know, the skill that we'll develop is facilitating that and bringing the albums into the room. Um, I'm saying to people now, you've got to – print some pictures off because somehow sitting around hearing, you know, when the person's dying, hearing the family saying, oh, remember when we went camping in that place? And it just changes the energy in the room to everybody watching for the last breath.
0: Mm. So it lightens things up, doesn't it? It lightens the load that this family doesn't have to carry through. and, And the
1: grief is different. By the time somebody dies if we've facilitated death well, it's almost a relief that they've died, and then, of course, there's going to be ongoing sadness. I'm not pretending that doesn't happen, but it's not pathological grief of, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's just different. It just is different. Wow.
0: Thank you, Denise. Could you tell us
1: about Cambodia while, you, while we've got sure, you Sure, sure. Yeah. So what happened with originally Cambodia was I was living here in Bangkok running Mothers groups, doula training, child education, working in three of the major hospitals here, trying to turn them into baby-friendly hospitals and breastfeeding-friendly hospitals. And I got an email saying, could you come to Cambodia and work with the traditional birth attendants and village volunteer workers and teach them what doulas are? Because there'd been a French organisation who really felt that doula skills were more important than medical skills because there's no medicine, (laughs) You know, you can't get drugs, in a hospital, so you need to know how to do birth without having the medicine that's there. So I started going over there, and on my fifth trip, there were week-long training courses that I used to do. I had an interpreter, spoke very little English, so who will ever know what we actually taught, but it was a very special week. Um, on my fifth trip, this beautiful midwife approached me and said, could you come to Cambodia and teach kindness? Just kindness is all she asked for. So somehow I rang my husband and said, I just have to do this. We sold our house and we've shared half of everything we own with Cambodia people, given away lots of money and facilitated stuff. And six weeks later, we opened a women's health centre, which was run by the midwives of a small town, Midwives Association of Takeo. And from there, we moved into villages, we look after eight health centres, and when I say look after health centres, they don't have water or anything, so we've put in wells, we've built toilets, I work beside the midwives to give them safe practice, not cut cords quite so quickly, um, wash their hands, make sure there's water to wash their hands. It's very remote and very isolated, no electricity. So we've put some solar panels in so we can actually see the baby's head on the perineum at night because it's really black and... So I've been, we've got five schools, been working over there, living in the village. Gary's been living in Sydney and lots of beautiful... The midwives of Australia have bought seven tuk-tuks, which we use as ambulance for for getting mummies and babies to hospital, which is two hours through the rice fields away. Wow. And so it's, it's just extraordinary organic grassroots care. So first schools... We just walk, work on little chalkboards. We don't have books and pencils. It's kind of, it's like another world and that's exactly now what we're doing in Burma. And the children love you, I bet? Absolutely. It's just extraordinary. And I'm tired. I've, I've been living, my man's retired now, so that's why we're doing Thailand Burma now. But we've got to, we always meant, to, was meant to be sustainable, so we handed it back a year and a half ago. And we maintain it. We still go in and do education. And it's more life skills building, you know. It's it's really some of our families, when we first went there, had never seen money. So it's it's kind of raw, raw earth stuff, you know. And it's beautiful. And our schools don't have buildings. They're just places we gather under the trees. And it's amazing.
0: Denise, yeah. do these sort of experiences, when you come back to, say, Australia, do you find You get frustrated or do you just let it sort of slide past you? No,
1: I actually hit the wall last time. Came back to Sydney. I just, um, Gary was still working. That's why we moved. We bought a house in country Victoria. I would, when i come back for three weeks, I used to come back every three months for three weeks to spend time with him because we actually like each other. But um, I just couldn't function. It was really hard. I'd walk in to have a coffee somewhere and they'd say, do you want almond milk, soy milk, this? I said, just give me some milk. I actually don't care. I hadn't seen milk for six months, you know. <laughs> and Then I asked somebody for a glass of water and they said, do you want tap water, cold water, bottle water, fizzy water? Just give me a glass of fucking water, you know. Exactly. Exactly. It was just ridiculous. Like I live off $20. Over there we we have boiled rice, we have a fire, we build a fire, we put one pot on, we boil the rice, we throw the green veggies in half a frog if we can find some protein. Like it's just – I don't know how I did it, to be honest, sitting here right now. Um, We're not living that tough right now, although it's pretty tough, but – It was it was life changing and I had I crawled into my shell for a while and we I said to Gary I've got to get out of here. I can't do it. So we moved down to Country Victoria and that saved my life and grew veggies and put my feet on the earth and integrated slowly. But yeah, that's why we've decided now. That's two years ago I was really struggling with real life. Mm.
0: And it, it's and, good Good, to sense, you know, the earth is so wise and old and
1: just to have that connection uh, again
0: with earth and learn the lessons. It was from
1: bare feet on grass. It was soil. Yeah. It was digging. It was picking the dead blossoms off flowers and remembering what matters, you know, and then slowly going down to another coffee shop and making a decision whether it was soy milk or ordinary milk or almond milk or this <laughs> milk. You're in a much better <laughs> frame of mind. <laughs> I could sort of deal with it. You know? And I'd have friends over, you know, and there we have no choice of anything. Friends would come over and want to say, well, you know, I'm vegetarian, I'm vegan, I'm wheat-free, I'm this-free, I'm that-free, I'm that-free. And I'd go, guys, is there anything you eat? How would let us look, you know? And I get it because I've got gut issues. I'm not being critical at all. But um, we just didn't have those problems. We didn't have those choices. choices. I was but yeah, to
0: say. There's so many choices that we're faced with sometimes. It overwhelms oh. us into this frenzy.
1: And nobody's got a car. She's, uh, look, every mummy can breastfeed. Every mother birth, I probably transfer three women for a cesarean three times a year, three a year out of thousands, and that would be somebody who might have died in the past. But often by the time we get to hospital along the dirt roads in the back of a tuk-tuk, she's ready to give birth anyway. We've shaken the baby out of her. Um, but no, there's no delayed labours. I can't even tell you how simple it is. It's almost embarrassingly simple, and people don't want to hear that. And I've never had a mother not be able to breastfeed. Yeah. Almost never had a sore nipple, never heard of colic over there. Babies just sleep and eat. Well, I
0: suppose breastfeeding so there in terms of survival is um, yeah. high on the list. It's not a matter it's of It's not choice. even an option. There's it's, nothing yeah, else. There's nothing else, yeah.
1: But women are willing to do it too. Women are willing to, even though they're up at 4.45 and collecting the twigs to make the rice and – um, babies are a priority for two years. The village looks after children until they're two. they do not Their feet don't touch the ground and just everybody loves them. And then you become part of the workforce. I mean, it's from there it all falls apart. But the first two years of a child's life is very special there. Yeah, they don't
0: it's, get a, it's, a, it's a big job, isn't it, that we sort of tend – I mean, we're fortunate in so many ways, but to create that divide and when you look in terms of survival that sometimes I feel oh. that we're so overregulated and we oh. have – there's nothing beats that feeling of when you're on the verge of life or death um, where
1: you need to survive. It's such a normaliser. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I see that, I see my mummies over there have got it better than all you girls and girls in big cities. There. The demands are so massive on women, you know, just massive, 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 and everybody wants their call back within seven and a half weeks, and off to yoga class, and got to be here, and my body's got to look good, and, you know, and it's all the dietary needs that we have because we're eating such ridiculous food, meaning genetically modified, I think is our biggest problem. Yeah. And, um, you know, the response, but even, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day, just with all the cooking shows, you've all got to be gourmet chefs, you know. <laughs> It's not to, such thing as boiled yeah. caties and peas, you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We've got this amazing world of choice, but unless it's sort of avocado, avocado done 13 different ways with 23 yeah. different greens and 14 different oils and
0: – Yeah, on some big arse, you know a what white, I'm white, saying? white plate with a few dribbles of, like, stuff all around it and
1: <laughs> – All of that. Yeah. All of that with one pomegranate seed there and one yeah. something or other. <laughs>
0: Scattered around it, the plate. <laughs>
1: I go and I I visit people's homes, when they particularly when you're mummy, and they say, I have a bit of the shops, and I open up their pantry. I say, we could actually feed you for a year, I'm sure, just out of your pantry, you know. Mm-hmm. Life is interesting, and we're doing it similarly. I mean, the people we're looking after at the moment, a bunch of kids, there's 90 of them living in a lean-to, kids that have been displaced through war in the last few weeks, setting up schools, giving them a bowl of rice once a day, that's literally it, setting up veggie gardens because they've got water. I mean, we're at another end of it right now. Where do you get the seeds from? Well, there. fortunately, locally we can source the seeds. In Cambodia, I tried bringing seeds in, but it's useless. But unlike Cambodia, there's no water in our village there. Only eight weeks of the year does it rain. This place has got water, so they can grow veggies Mm -hmm. and stuff. So it's all on the way. We've got beans growing already and at least they're getting greens and rice or they will be soon and we've got chickens in and some piggies in already but mosquito nets was my big one because dengue fever and malaria kill our little ones so we've got everybody under mosquito nets yeah great yeah and so so, it's beautiful i can run back to thailand and back to bangkok here though and just hide in my little place and my son's here so i'm not i was so alone over there i didn't have anybody else speaking english around me and in cambodia yeah
0: so you felt a I guess, that touch of isolation
1: sometimes. And... Without realising it, I did. I never yeah. felt it because, we I mean, I was on call 24-7 for birth and death and, and everything else in between ruptured appendix or anything else, stitching up everybody. So um, there was no time to think, you know. I just had a my hole in my heart was getting bigger and bigger for my husband. Um So it was just time to come home. But it was always meant to be a four-year program where we taught skills and left them to do it, and it's working really well in a different way. But, you know, we've opened a door to a different life for them. What a beautiful journey. It is, it is, it is. And so life is loving. I can't wait to come to Bega because we contemplated when we went to Dalesford in Victoria. I was contemplating that part of the coast. It was just a bit expensive still.
0: Yeah, um, so Bega, the 27th and 28th of May, is that
1: right? You'll be here? Yes.
0: Yeah, so Denise, you're doing a bit of a tour uh, for death doula training. And for still when a baby dies, one day workshop. So So they're together, is that right? One day. So
1: two days is death doula training and death doula training is not necessary. Death doula for me is somebody who's willing to talk death. That doesn't mean you have to go to anybody's house or do anything. So two-day course is death doula training and then I'm doing a one-day, which I haven't allocated a date for you because I wanted to talk to you about whether you want to do it or not, is when a baby dies.
0: Okay, great. So uh, you'll be in Melbourne, Canberra, Byron, Brisbane, uh, Imundi. Mates. Imundi mate now Lins.
1: as well. And, okay. and yeah, it's grow- um. it's growing
0: Excellent. I'll put that on the show notes too so everyone can link up to those dates. And um, Bega, come to Bega because I will be hosting that one and trying to get everyone involved. So
1: Can't wait (laughs) to be in Bega. Yeah, and I can't wait to meet you too. All right, my darling, you too. What a beautiful conversation. Thank you for your interest.
0: That's okay. Can you just yell out your website so people know where to begin to learn more about you? So I've got
1: two websites that's got the information about all of this is www.deniselove.net. And that's about me and everything else I do, including the death doula training. And then there's Com.
0: Beautiful. And I know you've spoken so many wise words, but could you maybe uh, share us a bit of wisdom in a sentence (laughs) from Denise?
1: Sure. (laughs) Sure. Well, the one thing I can tell you is that death is not the enemy. It's the fear that goes with it that stops us from living. That's the enemy in life. So if I can ask and suggest each of you spread your wings today and flies, you'll be able to fly. Just do it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Denise.
1: Lots of love. Bye. Bye.
0: Did you connect with this episode? Then head over to our website, circleofbirth.com. There you'll find show notes, pictures, resources, and potentially connect with today's storyteller. Don't forget to sign up to be updated with new empowering episodes and content. Help the show grow by contributing a tip in the jar to make sure we can continue to better the podcast and connect more and more to the wisdom of birth and each other. Hey, and don't forget the iTunes rating. This has been another episode of the Birth Share Project. We breathe, we birth, we empower.